Hey friends, welcome back to the Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Here we try to make keeping up with the literature as easy as possible, spoon-feeding you the latest research. Now, let's take a quick look ahead at everything that we'll be covering from this week. First off, we had new guidelines on POCUS for acute dyspnea. Then, more on fluoroquinolones and aortic pathology risks. After that, comparing aspirin to warfarin to anticoagulate cervical artery dissections. Then, we try and fail to predict complications in pediatric pneumonia. And then, wrap it all up with the basics RCT on endovascular therapy for basilar artery occlusion. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week's summaries, which this week were brought to you by our authors, The Brave, Graham Van Shake, and Clay Smith. Now, the first article was actually two articles, both out of the Annals of Internal Medicine. The first was point-of-care ultrasonography in patients with acute dyspnea, an evidence report for clinical practice guideline by the American College of Physicians, and the second was the appropriate use of of point-of-care ultrasonography in patients with acute dyspnea in emergency department or in patient settings, a clinical guideline from the American College of Physicians. So acute dyspnea is super common, you don't need me to tell you that. It accounts for more than 1.2 million emergency department visits in the U.S. annually. The reason it's so common is because there are so many possible causes. Figuring out which one is the actual cause is difficult, to say the least. Of course, we can listen to the crackles in the lungs, look for swelling of the ankles, ask about the history. These are all things that should never be done away with. The question here, though, is how much has POCUS helped in diagnosing the causes of acute dyspnea? Is it accurate and is it safe? Or are we just doing more harm than good with false positives and negatives? This study used the methods recommended by the Cochrane Diagnostic Test Accuracy Working Group to conduct a review of 49 studies. From those studies, only three of the five RCTs, which were reporting mortality outcomes as related to the use of POCUS, were considered to contain low bias. From those three, with about 1,200 patients, the risk ratio was 0.77 which is pretty good in favor of POCUS, until you glance at the 95% confidence interval, which spanned from 0.12 to 5.1, which means we have no idea. The four RCTs, which measured the length of stay, two were with pretty large numbers and had lower bias, and they had a median length of stay of 2.9 versus 3.1 days. So no significant in the lengths So no significant difference in the lengths of stay because of POCUS use. There is also no difference in readmission rates. Now this all sounds kind of disappointing, but all those numbers miss the point of POCUS. It's not like we weren't going to get to the right diagnosis eventually, but rather that it's faster and more accurate to use POCUS. And that's borne out in the data. Emergency physicians with extensive training in POCUS had more correct diagnoses for acute dyspnea by 4 hours at 88% which is 24% higher than those without using POCUS. They were also using the correct treatment within four hours, 21% more of the time if they use POCUS. And there were also higher sensitivities for detecting CHF, pneumonia, pulmonary embolism, pleural effusions, and pneumothorax across all the studies. So none of this is groundbreaking stuff. And the data used for this was largely, I mean, honestly, not the greatest. But it's one step closer to wearing an ultrasound probe around our necks instead of the stethoscope. In a spoonful, we seem to get there eventually in treating acute dyspnea, but POCUS helps us get there faster. 
Then the second article, which was titled The Effects of Fluoroquine Loans on the Outcomes of Patients with Acute Dissections or Aneurysms, out of the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. The last time we spoke about fluoroquine loans, we went over that there are a few studies linking them to aortic dissections. These studies are largely subjected to confounding by indication, which is when the cause of the outcome is really caused by the indication for the exposure rather than the exposure itself. So in this case, the indication is an infection and the exposure was fluoroquinolones. So infection is more linked to an aortic dissection than the antibiotics are. That's all in patients with normal aortas though. And of course we already know, and it's pretty well established that fluoroquinolones do cause problems with other connective tissues. So what about if you already have a known aortic dissection or aneurysm, then what's the effect of fluoroquinolones? This study was a large Taiwanese population database, which explored fluoroquinolone use in 32,000 patients with known pre-existing aortic dissections or aortic aneurysms. They looked at two-month blocks of time and compared each patient to themselves, when they were being exposed to fluoroquinolones and then a period when they were not. They also compared the periods with fluoroquinolone use to periods with amoxicillin use. They found an association between all-cause mortality and aortic pathology-related deaths with exposure to fluoroquinolones. There was a hazard ratio of 1.61 for all-cause mortality and 1.8 for aortic deaths. There was no association with amoxicillin. This isn't causal, of course, and there could still be confounding here, but from this data, it seems pretty reasonable to avoid fluoroquinolones in patients with aortic dissections or aortic aneurysms that they already have. In a spoonful, fluoroquinolone use in patients with known aortic dissections or aortic aneurysms was associated with increased risks of all-cause mortality and aortic death. And that brings us to the third article, which was titled... Aspirin versus anticoagulation in cervical artery dissection, the TREAT CAD trial, an open label randomized non inferiority trial out of the Lancet Neurology. So, until the CADIS study in 2019 that showed that cervical artery dissections might be treatable with antiplatelet therapy alone, most of these patients were treated with vitamin K antagonists like warfarin. Something that differs CADIS from this study is that they actually allow dual antiplatelet therapy. But, you know, aspirin would be the simplest thing that we could do to prevent strokes. Is aspirin alone good enough, or do we need more? This study was an open-label, randomized, non-inferiority trial that enrolled 194 patients with MRI-proven cervical artery dissections, and they were randomized to receive either aspirin at 300 mg daily or a vitamin K antagonist with an INR goal of 2 to 3 for 90 days. And they were trying to determine whether aspirin was non-inferior to vitamin K antagonists in preventing subsequent bad clinical or imaging outcomes. The clinical outcomes they were looking for were stroke, major hemorrhage, or death. And then the imaging outcomes they were looking at were ischemic or hemorrhagic brain lesions on MRI. All of these outcomes together made up their composite primary outcome. So the primary outcome occurred in 23% of the aspirin group and only 15% of the vitamin K antagonist group. That's an 8% difference, with a confidence interval spanning from negative 4% to 21%. So the authors had a predetermined upper limit on this confidence interval for the absolute difference, above which they were able to say that there was no inferiority. They set that limit to 12%. Now, 12% feels like a pretty large absolute difference to tolerate to still say that it's not inferior, but since they got 21 anyways, they weren't even close, it doesn't matter, I guess. 
There were seven strokes in the aspirin group and none in the vitamin K antagonist group. In terms of safety, both groups were fairly similar, though there were more adverse events in the vitamin K antagonist group, as you might expect. There were four times more MRI findings than there were clinical findings, which I think is really important, actually. Because that means that the primary outcome was largely led by something that's not a patient-oriented outcome because there were no clinical signs in these patients. That said, losing neurons is probably never a good thing. Now then, this is a little bit confusing, but just because aspirin isn't non-inferior doesn't actually mean that it is inferior. This study wasn't powered enough to detect superiority of either treatment. That being said, I would probably agree with our author Clay. I would pick a vitamin K antagonist or, let's be honest, a DOAC for myself if this was me. In a spoonful, aspirin was not non-inferior to vitamin K agonists in reducing bad clinical or MRI outcomes in adults with cervical artery dissections. In a spoonful, aspirin was not non-inferior to vitamin K antagonists in reducing bad clinical or MRI outcomes in adults with cervical artery dissections. Then we have the fourth article, which is titled Predictive Value of Clinician Gestalt in Pediatric Community-Acquired Pneumonia out of the journal Pediatrics. We have clinical decision aids for a lot of things these days, and we talk about them a lot on the journal feed. But still, there are things that rely purely on clinical gestalt. One such condition is trying to predict complications in pediatric community-acquired pneumonia. I'd say it's worth knowing how good we are at predicting this, though, because maybe if we suck, then we could design a tool to help us out. This study was a prospective study of 634 pediatric patients with radiographically confirmed community-acquired pneumonia. So complications occurred in only 5.8% of these children. And they asked pediatric emergency medicine physicians to try to prospectively predict the probability that these patients were going to have complications. Namely, these complications would have been respiratory failure, empyema or effusion, lung abscess or necrosis, metastatic infections, or sepsis or septic shock, or lastly, death. Their accuracy wasn't actually that bad, with an overall accuracy of 75%. But that's not that great either. Physicians with less experience actually performed a little bit worse, and they only had a 69% accuracy. If you instead look at the extremes, looking at just the very low or high chances of complications, then they actually did quite well. They had a 95% sensitivity and a 99.1% negative predictive value when saying that the patient had a less than 1% chance of complications from the infection. Most of the children were ranked in the 1-10% to range. And here the sensitivities were pretty much abysmal. They were in the mid-30s to mid-50s. And the, the specificity was 75 to 90%. Really not great. So if there were to be a risk stratification tool designed, then it should probably target these children. In a spoonful, clinician gestalt was not astounding when it came to predicting complications of community-acquired pneumonia in pediatric patients. And that brings us to the fifth and last article, Endovascular Therapy for Stroke Due to Basilar Artery Occlusion out of the New England Journal of Medicine. Most causes of stroke are not going to cause you to lose consciousness, but a basilar artery occlusion will do just the trick. This can cause coma or even the dreaded locked-in syndrome that we all fear so much. We would like to avoid this if at all possible, and thrombolysis is one way to do so. For other kinds of strokes, particularly anterior circulation strokes, endovascular therapy is superior to thrombolysis. How about with occlusion of the basilar artery? Would endovascular therapy also be preferred here? 
This study was an open-label multicenter RCT with 300 patients presenting with basal artery occlusion who were randomized to either usual medical therapy, that being thrombolysis, within four and a half hours of stroke onset, or to endovascular therapy done within six hours of stroke onset. Almost 80% of the patients received thrombolysis, and of the patients who did receive endovascular therapy, almost 80% of those also had thrombolysis. The primary outcome was favorable neurological outcome in 90 days, which was present in 44% of the endovascular therapy group compared to 38% of the usual care group. That's a risk ratio of 1.18, but the confidence interval spanned from 0.92 to 1.5 pretty wide. By way of safety, there were numerically more cases of bleeding and malignant brain edema in the endovascular therapy group, but not significantly so. Despite this, mortality rates were also not significant between the groups. So this was far from being a home run study, but it was well done and these findings are certainly enough to probably justify a larger study if that can be done. For the moment, there seems to be equipose and either option is likely defensible. In a spoonful, there was no statistical difference in outcomes when treating basilar artery occlusions with thrombolysis or endovascular therapy. And that wraps us up. Let's do a quick review of everything we covered just to, you know, consolidate. First off, we had our article about POCUS, which gets us to the right diagnosis and the right treatment faster when treating acute dyspnea. Second, fluoroquinolones might not cause aortic pathologies on their own, according to recent data, but if aortic pathology is already present, then it might worsen it. Consider avoiding fluoroquinolones in patients with known aortic dissections or aortic aneurysms. Third, this trial did not show that aspirin was non-inferior to vitamin K antagonists for the treatment of cervical artery dissections. Fourth, perhaps a clinical decision tool would be useful for predicting complications of community-acquired pneumonia in children, particularly if their risk is estimated to be from 1-10% to 10 by Gestalt. And from the fifth article, going the extra mile to do endovascular therapy on basilar artery occlusion patients doesn't appear to be statistically better than just thrombolysis alone, at least from this RCT. A larger study will likely be warranted. Now then, you've earned them, we offer them. See me credits provided through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org, where we also offer our blog, where you can get the very same content, which you can use for some space repetition for the very best learning possible to keep you sharp on your shift. Our goal here at the Journal Feed is to provide the best patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.